Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the 2020 U.S. Democratic primary. This week on the Primarily podcast, I'm talking to the political journalist Emma Brunel. Um, this is an opportunity for us to just take a big picture view of the race where it is so far. We've talked a lot about various different issues related to the 2020 primary in previous episodes. But while we've been doing that, a lot of people have been entering the race. And I thought it was useful to just take a step back and have a think about what's going on. So a really good chat with Emma um, over coffee. Um, so stick around for that. Um, after that, there will also be three interesting segments coming up. Um, I have asked some close friends of mine who are already supporting one candidate or another to give a two-minute statement as to why they specifically are excited about those individual candidates. Now, that's obviously not an endorsement um, of any of these candidates, um, but each of my different friends, for different reasons, um, finds themselves strongly leaning towards one candidate or other. So I thought it would be interesting to hear, from their point of view, the case for, respectively, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg. So without further ado, um, let's talk to Emma. So welcome um, to Emma Burnell. Hello. Uh, Emma is, do you want to introduce yourself actually? Yeah, so I'm a political journalist, British as you can tell from the accent, but absolutely obsessed with American politics. Um, Write about it, think about it, Uh, listen to every podcast going, including this one. Um, And while I am partisan in British politics, uh, so I'm part of the Labour Party for my many, many sins. Um, While I obviously have a leftist bent, I think I have that slight detachment from the Democratic Party, which gives me a an ability to be a bit more of a critical friend. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for both your friendship and your criticism. Um, it's funny because I feel exactly the same way about the Labour Party. It's I, I, I observe it. I'm interested in it. I, I wish it well, but I don't fully understand it. Um, and To be honest, I've been a member for 28 years and there are days when I feel like that. <laughs> um, but we're here to talk about the US Democratic Party. Um, which um, absolutely must win the next presidential election or world as we know it may come to an end, not to, you know. Not to catastrophize, but. Not to catastrophize, <laughs> but, you know, let's be let's be real. Um, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do on this particular episode of the podcast is I've talked about a lot of different issues and aspects and ways of thinking about the race. But in the meantime, as those of you who have been listening will have heard from my news updates, lots of people keep entering. And we now have a, a pretty significant roster of people who are in and another group of people who are thinking about it. And I thought it's worth just taking a, a step back and looking at the whole field and seeing about how we feel about it right now. Um, so in terms of the people who are definitely in the race so far, it's, it's already a long list. Um, so Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, Pete Buttigieg, and then some names that you probably will never have heard of, Andrew Yang, Marianne Williamson, completely out of left uh, left field. Um, I think the people at the bottom of the list, certainly Andrea and Marianne, um, probably aren't going to be talked about this time next year, but there are a bunch of people in the race. Um, of the people who are currently running, though, I thought it was worth noting, there is literally not one straight white man <laughs> in that list. People yeah, did. but we know Bernie's coming, right? <laughs> we know Bernie's coming, but he is not declared so far. And so I just kind of wanted to take the moment. Let's, let's no, pause. No, absolutely. Definitely <laughs> worth a moment worth reflecting and celebrating. Um, that, that, that broad spectrum of talent from different parts of the Democratic Party 
and yet also representing a real rainbow coalition in every in every sense of the word. Yeah, it's ideologically diverse, it's ethnically diverse, it's geographically diverse. Um, Pete Buttigieg, who's the only white man, is openly gay. Yeah. And the fact that that isn't even that much of a thing um, is also kind of really interesting in terms of where the party is and where we've come from and where we've come to. And also where the world is, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean... It it is worth sort of stepping back and thinking. Hang on, that's that's amazing because we've we've had such an awful few years um, in liberal politics, um, and you know the uh, I thought Stacey Abraham's um, recent essay on identity politics was just so inspiring and brilliant. This and was this is the one she published in Foreign Affairs. Yes, it? yeah, and you know really kind of spoke to why my feminism will often trump my socialism and why I don't believe you can be socialist without being feminist or um, small L liberal. Mm. Um, Because um, the way I always put it is that feminism, so socialism without liberalism is socialism for straight white men Mm -hmm. and liberalism without socialism is freedom for rich people. And, 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 you know, you don't use the S word so much in America. I get that. (laughs) You've got you're coming there. You're getting Although there. More and more Good lately, old AOC, um, God yeah. lover. Um, but actually, you don't have to use that word to know that policies like Medicare for all or universal healthcare, however you decide to deliver it, um, you know, better than talking about. You're talking about inequality in a way that just happens socially, be- socially beneficial policies yeah. that are aimed at the well-being of the entire population. Yeah. Um, and I think, but I think the S word is an interesting one to bring up because actually, when we talk about ideological diversity um, within even the current crop of candidates, um, so Elizabeth Warren ha- is seen as to the left of the party, perhaps more. I don't. She doesn't call herself a socialist um, because very few people do in the United States, yeah, and, and particularly that generation. Particularly that generation, and I think she probably genuinely isn't, um, but she is very strongly uh, a very strong advocate for consumer rights for middle class um, middle class interests being superseded uh, uh, being more important than those of of the wealthy plutocrats who are currently benefiting from our society um, and that's I, and I, what I think interesting is that there isn't the if you want to say the Bill Clinton figure mm, right mm. now within the party so Bill Clinton in the 90s was very much kind of the safe face of liberalism and he was triangulating um, he was happy to you know, it's almost kind of put certain constituencies of the Democratic Party aside in the interest of getting the presidency. I don't think that that playbook works anymore, just partly because of who the party is, because of who the country is, maybe because of who Donald Trump is. It, it feels it feels like we're not doing that right now. And that's, again, worth noting. Well, I think if you I mean, if you think about what we were all talking about like a week ago, where everyone was slagging off Michael Schultz and just thinking, what an idiot. Howard Schultz. Howard Schultz. And can sorry. we can we keep doing that? Because I, I, I think he hasn't finished being slagged off. I yeah. Think we can, no, we can kick and, him a bit more. Yeah, until he decides that actually he shouldn't. I mean, frankly, if he wants to run, mm. he's been a Democrat. He's like, Try and run in the primary. But the fact that he's made this calculation that he knows he's going to get nowhere in the primary speaks to exactly what you were just saying about Clinton. Yeah. Um, and yes, I was, what I've done is, is conflate him and Michael Bloomberg, haven't I? Yeah. Who, Which, com- to be fair, to be two fair to Bloomberg, billionaire, <laughs> socially liberal, fiscally conservative. But uh, Bloomberg, for once, has had the presence of mind to go, you know what? It's not my moment. Mm. Uh, whereas it seems like uh, Howard Schultz is not um, currently that self-aware. Um, 
Well, Michael Bloomberg has previously served in elected office, and so he knows something about electoral calculation, right? He knows how how you add up the numbers to determine whether you have a winning coalition, and he knows he doesn't have those numbers. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he does, and and he also knows that if he were to do it, he'd have to do it through the Democratic Party, and that he's not going. He's not where the Democratic Party's at. He's not. They're not going to select a billionaire from New York. They're just not. I sure hope not. Because um, two consecutive billionaire presidents would also be not would not say great things about the country. No, and and very very difficult things about um, you know the democracy. And if you do, as you say, have have this incredible range of candidates running um, that represent so many different um, coalitions that are really important to the Democratic Party. Black women, huge hugely important um, constituency. Um, LGBTQ people, all of this. And then you went, if you were to end up with some boilerplate, mm-hmm. um, you know, liberalish, middle of the roadish, whitish guy, it, it would just be so disappointing mm-hmm. given the moment that we're in. I guess, yeah, it would feel disappointing. I guess the only thing I would say to that is because we talked about ideological diversity, ethnic diversity, what have you. I think, you know, I'm not closed to any candidate who puts across a message that I think is right. And and what I mean by that is identity is more than just who you are and who your parents were and where you come from. Identity is how you tell your story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And so I'm what I'm really interested in, what I'm kind of listening out for as a communications professional is the way that people are telling their story. So Elizabeth Warren, for example, has, you know, she's a female candidate. But she's and she's running as a female candidate unabashedly, but she's telling a story of her place in American life very different than Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting to note. So they're the, identity wise, they're both white women, but their stories are so different. And that's what I'm interested in. No, absolutely. And that's where that middle of the road part of my my description is really, that's really the key important element there. because I think that's where it really just does become everything's a bit mushy. And Obviously, the argument that they're all the same can no longer be employed while Trump's in the White House. <laughs> I mean, you just cannot go there. Um, and unfortunately, they did try to do that, and they, they rather successfully did that to Hillary. Oh, she's just as corrupt, she's just as bad, which is a load of... I don't know where you're at with swearing on your podcast. Also, do, know, do Americans know the word bollocks? You can say bollocks, because I don't think most Americans would know it's a swear. They would just think it's cute in British. So. Excellent. Bollocks to you all. Bollocks! <laughs> I mean, yeah, it just was complete, total and utter bollocks. Um, but it was quite a successful, and it was successful in part because Hillary did come from that sort of centrist um, Wall Street background that that hurt her with the constituencies who did turn out for Trump. Yeah. So, so here's the question I keep being asked. Now, I, I've put myself in the limelight because I've, I'm doing this podcast, which means it's a fair question. Every time somebody starts talking to me about U.S. politics, they fairly ask me, OK, but who would you vote for? Yeah. Um, and I've been really upfront. I don't have a candidate yet. Um, part of what I'm trying to do is, is work through the process of figuring out how I'll choose one. 
Um, but I honestly don't have an answer to that question. And I've, I've been thinking to myself, I like a lot of these people yeah. and I like them not just a little bit. I like them a lot. I'm genuinely, I have been a fan of Elizabeth Warren for a long time since, since I was reading her policy blogs on bankruptcy reform, because I'm a massive geek. <laughs> <laughs> that is massive geek. <laughs> I mean, seriously, to my shame, um, you know, yeah, no. Julian Castro, I actually, the geek. <laughs> Julian Castro, I actually met him. He came to London. Um, he met with some Democrats, some other Democrats who are here. He was charming. He was thoughtful. I really liked what he had to say about the, the kind of lessons that you learn from being, um, you know, working in a small, small town environment. And then he went into HUD and worked with President Obama. Really interesting story about kind of the, the grassroots, the sort of real, real world effect of politics on people. So these are, there's some great people in here. Kamala Harris, I think a lot of us have been watching her absolutely tear it up in mm -hmm. the hearings in the Senate. Her prosecutorial background really comes through. And there's a part of me that's thinking it'd be really interesting to see her up against Trump because he's clearly outclassed. Um, so I like a lot of these people um, and I like them a lot, sincerely. I just don't yet know which one pulls together all of the things that are going to soar, make me soar into enthusiasm as opposed to just really, really liking them. Well, I think that's the right approach, particularly while you're doing this podcast. Yeah. To be honest, you should hang on to that as long as possible because... It's so, I mean, if you look at what happened in the 2016 primary and how divisive that was and how you were a Hillary person or yeah. you were a Bernie person. And, you know, I find a lot of my my slightly anti-Bernie biases, um, some of them are for good reasons, some of them are less so. I don't, it's not Bernie. Yeah. I say politically, we're probably on massively the same page. Yeah. But I find the bros just so deeply annoying and we yeah. have them over here too. And they just, I just want to smack them. Um, so it's, but do I feel like that as strongly as I do because of the way that that primary was yeah. so divisive? So I think that there are two really good things happening at the moment. One, you've got, you haven't just got two candidates yeah. and that will not just then send your party into two places. So sure. the longer that can go on and you've got maybe in the end, three or four really strong candidates that can come that I think that's less divisive. Yeah. Um, and secondly, Every single one of them will have strengths and weaknesses. And you will have to be fully aware of the weaknesses of whoever you do end up getting behind. Yeah. And you will have to be fully aware of how you could then utilize the strength of anyone who doesn't win. And yeah. um, so, yeah, these are the people, these are your people. Whether or not one of them gets to the very top, they're still your guys. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also, and, and kind of you were alluding to it, but I think it's really important that everybody feels heard. And I kind of feel like I'm excited about a primary in which we will start to unpick these issues. And so far, I mean, it's really early days, but so far it's been conducted in a very um, constructive manner. Yeah. You know, what I don't want is Democrats tearing each other apart. Um, but as long as what we're doing, and this is what we're doing so far, is talking about differences that are real differences on policy, differences of emphasis, making a good case for why we're doing things the way we're doing them or why we believe what we believe, and making sure that every different constituent part of the party genuinely has a chance to be heard, mm -hmm. then I think that's all to the good. And also, it gives us an opportunity to, to play a bigger role in the media landscape, right? Because yeah. the longer we're talking amongst ourselves, the less time Donald Trump gets. And I'm happy for him to get as little media time as, as possible. Yeah. And I think if you guys are going around having this really positive conversation about, you know, competing visions for America, and those visions are similar, but have, you know, differences in nuance, differences in emphasis, 
all that time that you know, you're doing that, you're putting forward a positive case, um, and you've got Trump on the other hand just shutting down the government randomly, and yeah. all he talks about is a, is a wall, and he's just playing to that thirty five percent that is his base. Yeah, you know, you are talking to the rest of the country, and that that's a, a vastly better, more productive, more proactive thing to be doing. I agree. So we've talked about the people who are in the race. Um, there is a ridiculously long list of people who are not in the race, but but likely to come in or, or at least have been talked about as coming in. Um, one I'll say up at the top, um, Amy Klobuchar um, from Minnesota, who I personally love, um, is apparently making an announcement this weekend of some kind. I think I can't imagine what that would be. It would, would be a shock <laughs> if she was like, I'm starting a new business. Yeah. <laughs> I have bought a dog. I'm moving to England. <laughs> In which case, Amy, come check us out. Yeah, absolutely. Come on the pod. <laughs> so she's making an announcement this weekend. Um, Joe Biden is not yet in the race. Bernie Sanders is not yet in the race. Sherrod Brown, um, the senator from Ohio, is getting a lot of conversation. Um, Beto O'Rourke, who was a bit of the kind of political political pizzazz flavor of the month in the last uh, midterm election, is not yet in the race. Stacey Abrams, who you mentioned earlier, is not in the race um, and has said that she's it's something she's thinking about. Um, she gave the State of the Union uh, response this week, um, which was very well received after after Trump's State of the Union. Um, and it was really interesting because that slot is historically a graveyard for Democratic mm. hopes. Um, I don't know if you know. Well, and Republic. I mean, who, yeah. who remembers Bobby Jindal? Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> There's a bit of a tradition of, of whatever party is out of power, giving kind of a rising star in their party a premium slot after the State of the Union and them not doing very well. Stacey, Stacey nailed it. So um, I think she she remains a contender. Um, so there's a lot of people who are generating excitement and aren't even in, but let's talk about two of them in a little bit more detail because we've already talked a little bit about Bernie Sanders. Um, Joe Biden is an interesting one for me. So Joe is, love Joe. I adore Joe Biden. I love the Joe and Obama memes, all of that stuff. You know, he, in terms of his public figure, yeah. he's an absolute, he's your sweet grandpa guy, yeah. isn't he? Bless, Bless him. him. But, but he's that middle of the road, older white guy yeah. that I just think it would be a shame if we ended up there. I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot from the Democrats that I'm talking to, and I'd be really interested to know, you know, somebody should poll this, actually, because one of the talking points that I'm hearing from a lot of Democrats in terms of their own decision making process is, I don't want to elect to vote for anybody who has run for president before. Mm. Um, and I've heard that from three or four different Democrats. And I, I it's interesting. Um, and that obviously would leave out Joe, who's Joe Biden, who's run twice, at least maybe three, three times, actually, I think. Run for president run or run to be the nominee? No, run for run for nomination yeah. for the presidential nomination. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's obviously never been the yeah, nominee. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I thought, oh, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Um, but Bernie obviously um, ran for the nomination as well. Um, and I think I think that's tied up in another thing I'm hearing from a lot of Democrats, which is I don't want to vote for anyone over 60. Mm. And there's almost like a baby boomer it's, you know, we are done with your generation. You, you've had enough time in the limelight. It's time for others to step forward, um, which I think is interesting because it does, first of all, it cuts out a lot of a lot of our top people. Mm. But I think it does also have some political logic to it in that the longer you've been around, the less likely you are to 
excite people in a new way. There's a lot of evidence that people who have been in public life for, I think it's more than 16 years, once they've hit this point, it's very, very unlikely that they will ever win the presidency. Um, so there's all these kinds of things going into it. And also it just, it feels intuitively like an election that's about change and youth rather than trust and trust and reliability and going back to what's known. But Bernie can maybe tap into that. I don't know. What yeah, do I mean, this is, there is a strange um thing that is happening both in the US and over, much more over here in the UK, where this guy who's been around forever, who is an old white guy, becomes the embodiment of the hopes of a new youth movement. Yeah. And we've got it with Corbyn. So yeah, I was gonna say for my American listeners, that would be Jeremy Corbyn, the current leader of the Labour Party, um, who is a very Bernie Sanders figure. Very Bernie Sanders like, figure. I mean, so he was on the hard left of the Labour Party. He was considered an absolute like he was never going to be a minister in anyone else's government. Um, he was never going to rise up the ranks. He ran um, because that part of the party always runs a candidate every time there's a leadership, and it was literally just his turn. Um, And it caught fire. And that was partly to do with the political moment and partly to do with him. Um, But again, I think um, Bernie Sanders had the same thing, where he, he caught the zeitgeist moment, and it didn't matter that he was a boomer. He was still the guy that was speaking about the things that... Generation X and millennials most cared about. Yeah. Um, so I think there is it, it they people don't have to embody that yeah. if they can speak to it. Um, having said that, I think that my sense is in the Democratic Party is that there is a difference in terms of they do want someone to embody it a little yeah. bit more. They do want to move on a generation. I think the the boomer versus um, Gen X millennial mm. is even stronger in the US than it is over here. Yeah. And it's pretty strong over here. Um, so I think that, that 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 time for change thing mm. is really, really important. And I think that was a lot of what killed Hillary. Yeah. Um, she'd just been around for too long. Yeah. And the terrible thing of that is, is that up until about the election beforehand, what you needed to have was loads of experience. Mm. And you then had the most qualified woman in the world get done over by being too bloody qualified. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting because actually I having worked having worked on the Obama campaign early in the primary, I can tell you that they they we Obama supporters felt very strongly that Hillary's weak point was her experience, yeah. just just as it was in 2016. That um, it was a change election, having come out of coming out of the George W. Bush administration, people wanted something different. Yeah. And it's not, and it's funny. Like I'm, I'm not. This podcast is not about Hillary Clinton because I have complicated feelings about sure, her. Sure, yeah. I could do a whole yeah. <laughs> like psycho, season of psychoanalysis. Well, you'll on. have me on again. Yes. <laughs> But, but the, the thing with Hillary is she genuinely isn't a change person. Yeah. Like, and no, that's, she, that's she who represents she is. A, a sense of stability and continuity. And it's also what she believes in, yeah. right? Like she is genuinely somebody who believes in incremental incremental change and she's pragmatic and she's a policy wonk and that's and that's who she is and that's right. Like that's that's right that she stands up for what she is and who she believes in. I just don't think it's where the voters are. Yeah. And, you know, Donald Trump maybe went too far the other way for most people's tastes, but it was the direction we were yeah. going. 
So, but but anyway, to come back. And I think also she tried to embody change yeah. in I'm a woman and that's enough change. Yeah. And that wasn't enough change for most people. You know, and I think in some ways that's a good thing. Yeah. Because actually we're saying <clears throat> it's not enough just to be a woman. Um, we we should be taking it for granted that it could yeah. be a woman. Of course we <laughs> can't. Um, but you have to be a woman who does X, Y, and Z, yeah. or you have to be a guy who does X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But I think I think one of the things that that we took away as a party from 2016 is Bernie Sanders as a person didn't win the nomination. Yeah. Bernie Sanders as a set of policies, if you take his list of things yeah. he stands for um, concretely, a lot of them are now virtually they're the access test. Tests. They're what you have to say to, to yeah. be allowed to run. I mean, Medicare for all, yeah. fifteen dollar minimum wage. Yeah. These things are now mainstream in yeah. the party and broadly popular in America. And so the man did change American Absolutely. political life. No, no I think Bernie has a really, really interesting role in history. I'm mm. not sure it's as the leader, but as the guy who changed the Democratic Party, yeah. you've got to give him props for that hugely. Yeah. And I really do. And you know, the Democratic Party now is so much closer to where I sit politically yeah. um, than it was in the 90s. And, and I mean, yeah. Obama, I think initially tried to go there but then there was in just yeah. such a difficult moment with the crash and everything i think that one of the problems that we have as a party though is that the difference between so we are we are in an era of negative partisanship right we are um and there's a lot of research on this the, the country is and, and a lot of countries are i think there's you know some of this here too but the country is so closely aligned along partisan lines yeah. Um, the people are literally not worth willing to work across the aisle. There's almost no way of getting a collaboration or an agreement um, because th th there's just no points. Of, I mean, there are even where there are points of agreement. It's not in your political best interests if you want to win re-election to work alongside someone from the other party, no matter how reasonable they may be. The trouble is that's the opposite of how you govern mm. because in America, mm -hmm. there are so many veto points in place that you can't, if you're elected on that, on that strategy, it's almost impossible to then deliver the agenda you've promised. Yeah. No, your system is bonkers. It's tr it's <clears throat> pretty broken. I mean, ours is not great, but yours is bonkers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, over here, I think that that has slightly been broken down by the Brexit referendum mm. because now there are two tribes, yeah. but they're leave and remain, and they both sit within the Labour Tory tribes too. So we did yeah. have an election in 2017 where we went very, very tribal. Yep. And you know, the, the, the formerly centrist party um, just got nowhere. Um, and they went from having been in government at one point to having 12 seats to having like, you know, like eight. Like eight, eight they had yeah. eight and then they got 12 and it's like, wow, wow. You know, they're, they're, they're just nowhere. Yeah. And there's no point to them. Um, but... What that has meant is that those two big coalitions of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party contain people that really, really stretch very, very far along ideological spectrums. So you've got, um, for example, someone who is way to the left, like Jeremy Corbyn and the people in, in and his, around his office, and you know, Tony Blair, who voted Labour in 2017. Yeah. Um, and represents everything that the Corbynites really don't like yeah. about sort of centrist um, and that third way approach. You know, Blair and Clinton were lockstep in that. Yep. 
So that's an interesting, that is a really good point. Um, and it is true. The tribes are no longer left and right. It is almost open pro- and closed open, is one of the ways open and people describe it. And that's in a different articulation of it. That dynamic exists in the U.S. too. It's just that it's matched almost perfectly with the party lines right now. Yeah. Because openness is exclusively a Democratic value and closeness is exclusively a Republican value, which isn't to say there aren't individual Republicans who would like to see American be more open to immigration. There certainly are, but it's not politically possible for them to articulate that view within the political ecosystem that they work in. Um, and and so it's very hard to find a way forward. And, and they tried, didn't they? Um, after the uh, the first Obama victory, there was yeah. you know, a huge amount of work done in the Republican Party about how they could better appeal on immigration. And you just think, where did that work go when you look at them now and you hear you know the, the rhetoric coming from the top down yeah. and unchecked by anyone who previously and you know, and privately as you all know yeah. massively disagree with with Donald Trump yeah um, and you hear you, know, you have people like Steve King running around oh. just being absolutely atrocious not frankly that this week has covered the Democrats in glory on these issues yeah I'm um, sorry about Virginia yeah <laughs> should we take it back <laughs> I mean, honestly, as a, a former Virginia voter myself, um, I cannot believe that. I, I don't even know what to say. So for those of you who aren't aware, um, in this week in Virginia, Governor Northam, the, the Democrat, um, was was discovered that he had put a picture on his college yearbook, his medical school yearbook, in fact, um, which was of a man in blackface standing next to a man in a Ku Klux Klan hood which sounds almost like a parody of the kind of horrific thing that you can imagine happening. Um, And then bizarrely, he apologized for it, seeming to accept responsibility that one of those two people, it's unclear whether it was the man in blackface or the man in the Klan hood, but neither is good. Unclear which of them he was conceding was him. Then he's tried to take it back and said he didn't think it was him. And just when everybody was saying, so there was a massive calls for him to resign. And then just when that was all happening, um, when his 39-year-old African-American lieutenant governor was preparing to potentially step on the become governor, um, a woman accused him of a sexual assault in, for, that took place in, allegedly took place in 2004. Now he's dealing with that. So obviously, that's not a great option now. And then, what was it, the... The speaker of the house, like so two or he three other, third in line. Yeah, he he came out ahead of a story and said there is a photo out of there. Just for the record, uh, just for the record, I did blackface. I think I think he dealt with it a lot better yeah. than Northam did. Uh, I mean, I think that the just in Fairfax thing is is really, I think for me, the most complicated. Well, it's not complicated, and it shouldn't be, but it's yeah. being treated as complicated because it if he were to have to step down. It's possible the Republicans could take over um, in that role. Now, the thing about values is they only exist as a reality if you hold on to them when that's politically difficult for you. So for me, anyone who said of uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Christian Blasey Ford, there must be an investigation, this cannot go forward as it is, has to say the same thing in these circumstances no matter how politically inconvenient that is otherwise that's not a value that's a political strategy and that's not on yeah it's hard but this is exactly why i am glad that we are having a robust democratic primary 
because what we need is to get all of these things out of the open. Um, this has obviously happened at, in Virginia at a state level, but at a national level, if anybody has anything hidden in their closets, we need it to come out now. I want excellent opposition research. I want journalists to do their job, dig into the histories of these candidates. I want them to challenge them on their positions. I need to see these people put under pressure so that we can identify who can actually live up to their best ideas of themselves and who's going to crumble at the first hurdle. There are challenges that will need to be faced by a president that need to be replicated as best it possibly can by the challenges of the race. And that's why, in a way, it's it's a good thing if bad things happen on a campaign because you learn something about the candidate as a voter and the candidate learns something about themselves in terms of how they run. So hopefully we will not have anybody in the presidential race who's um, caught out appearing in blackface or in a Ku Klux Klan uniform. But if we do, then better get it out of the way now long before that person faces Donald Trump. So with that said, Emma and I are now going to move on and play the gut check game with some special changes to it this week. So uh, we're going to play the gut check game now. For those of you who know the podcast from previous, uh, the gut check game previously has been candidate names in my trusty Red Red Sox baseball cap. Um, We draw it out. We say how we feel about them. Now we're actually doing it with policies, slogans, strap lines, and sentences that I've heard on the campaign trail. Um, So we'll go ahead and pick the very first one, which is Medicare for all. Medicare for all. That's what it says on the tin. (laughs) Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm British, so we have the NHS, and we think you're all mad for not having the NHS. Uh, The NHS is described by both left and right as our national religion. Um, We love it. It's so passionate about it in in its defence. Even when the Tories are running it down, they still have to pretend to love it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a slogan it's you can chant. Yeah, Medicare for all. Medicare, Medicare for all. Medicare for all. I think, yeah, the key point for me is people, Americans know what Medicare for all is. If you say NHS, they don't know. Sure. If you talk about socialized medicine or single payer, it all sounds complicated. Medicare exists right now. Americans benefited from it. We have it. They think they know what it would mean if we got it for everyone. Now, it's not true that they all know what it would mean. It's not true that Americans can genuinely know what Medicare for all would be because we would have to change the program to make it relevant to um, younger people. But in terms of messaging slogan and getting across the idea that universal healthcare doesn't have to be scary, it worked really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't need to put all the details into your into your headline policy. That's you know, no, no, no voters are looking for that. Absolutely. They understand what you mean when you say we will have Medicare for all. Nobody's going to read the fine print. No, and, and it's like I mean, you know, build a wall. Well, yeah. actually, it's some slats and you know some both posts here, and actually, there's a mountain. You didn't need to say that, and it didn't. Well, he didn't have to say that. It's. Just, I mean, I hate it as a, as a political strategy, and I hate that it works quite well as a political strategy. But it works bloody well as a slogan. You can't argue with that. Absolutely right. Should we do another one? Yeah, Emma. There you go. Uh, Together, America, we will rise. That's a Cory Booker quote. Cory Booker saying. So Cory Booker is lovely and he's a very smart, very interesting politician. I always find him a little schmaltzy though. And that slogan is the same. It's like, that's very poetic and lovely. I'm not quite sure I know what it means. Mm, mm. Rising to what? what? What's going on? Why is that? What are you arguing in that message? Uh, it's a bit too long yeah. for a slogan. You can't chant it. 
Um, the only bit you could chant is the we will rise. But if you actually just have rooms of people shouting, we will rise, that's a little fascist. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, it doesn't quite work, does it? It's, I can see where he's going. It's kind of that Reagan-esque morning, morning in America thing. It is optimistic. I don't think it addresses the point of the moment, though, mm. because that together America we will rise is kind of like, well, everyone's going to rise. And it's a little bit of raising all the boats, which was the old Clintonian way, yeah. where actually what you need to do is say, in America, the people who are not currently rising will rise. Yeah. And you guys at the top, we're not going to kill you, but you know we are going to tax you a little better to have a better country for everybody. Yeah. It's really funny. I I, I tweeted something the other day where somebody was talking about billionaires and, and they were saying we do you know the, the idea of taxing them and they somebody alluded to it as punishment and I sort of tweeted about this I was like if I tell my daughter she can't have a fourth piece of cake I'm not punishing her it's not that she's done anything wrong if she's been an angel she still kind of forces four pieces of cake because that's just too much yeah absolutely and I think that's the key for me it's like we're not saying billionaires are bad. They may be bad. They may not be bad. The reason to tax them is not because they're bad. It's because it's not healthy. It's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for us. If you're building a healthy, rounded, well, robust society, you don't let people become multi-billionaires. And, you know, there is a societal benefit that billionaires, too, as human beings, benefit from when society is better. And the way to make society better is to invest in it. And the way to do that is a decent progressive tax system. Right. And that is not really encapsulated by Together America, we will rise. Not really, no. Right. <laughs> Keep working on that one, Corey. Should we do one more? One more. You want to, you want to pick it up? Oh, there we go. Nevertheless, she persisted. Oh. Elizabeth Warren. I, I have that. this. Well, actually, because I am an uber geek, <laughs> I have a T-shirt that says, nevertheless, she regenerated. Which oh, Jodie Whittaker. Jodie Whittaker, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, come on. It's a slogan that was created out of the moment, wasn't it? Because um, for those who don't know, Elizabeth Warren was making a speech on um, on the Senate floor in opposition to Jeff Sessions. He was actually reading out a letter that was written by Martin Luther King's widow, mm -hmm. objecting to Sessions being given an earlier job, a federal a federal court posting. Um, and she was told she couldn't, ridiculously, mm -hmm. because you can't criticize a sitting senator. Well, but he's a nominee for office, and yeah. you, you have to interrogate him to, to make that ruling. So, um, And she, was, she repeatedly refused to stop talking and eventually... I think Mitch McConnell actually said, you know, you were warned, you were given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. And I think every woman in the world, and it, I think every person who's been shut down unfairly just goes, yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think two things about this. One, I think it's great that it's part of her brand yep. and her innate herness, but she shouldn't run on it. And yeah. the reason she shouldn't run it is the same reason that Clinton's I'm with her didn't yeah. work as a slogan. Yeah. It's not about Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. And this, this um, you know, this slogan is about Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Her slogan needs to be about what Elizabeth Warren's going to do for the country. Yeah. And um, so while nevertheless she persisted is a great thing to have as an innate sense of who she is. Yeah. Um, her her offer has to be, my persistence will be for you. Yeah. You never have she or her or me or I or him or it in the in your slogan because actually it's not about you. 
I agree. So we'll say, nevertheless, pers- nevertheless, she persisted is part of the Elizabeth Warren brand yeah. persona. Yeah. If we're doing Absolutely. if we're doing it that way, and she, you know, she she will, I'm sure, come up with another slogan that's about what she'll do for America or what we can do together. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Persistently better. Persistently better. <laughs> there you go. Persistently rising. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless. Persistently <laughs> rising for all. Nevertheless together. <laughs> okay, now we've gone hysterical, so it's probably time to end there. Um, Emma, thank you enormously for your time. Oh, I really thank you for having it. me. I've loved it. All right, well, come on again sometime. Please. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. So without further ado, I want to go straight into three different statements from some close friends um, and colleagues of mine um, who I've worked with on Democratic Party politics for a long time or just known for a long time. Um, Each of these people have already chosen a candidate and I've just been really interested to hear their point of view and how they've reached that point um, and what they think about why they think their candidate is the person who should be the nominee. So without further ado, here is Brewster Thackeray for Kamala Harris. Barack Obama proved not only is the country ready for an African-American president, it is a ticket to getting elected due to the proportion of the electorate. Is America ready for a woman president? Hillary Clinton proved that the majority of voters are. What if you put the two together? Definitely sounds like a winning recipe for me for 2020. Kamala Harris also has to her advantage that she's a candidate in her mid-50s, a truly ideal age, as she could complete two terms in office before she'd reach the traditional retirement age, meaning she would bring energy and vitality to an office that critically needs it. In addition to that, I think it's very impressive that she has a background as a prosecutor. Because let's face it, we already have many people in President Trump's orbit being indicted, and there's going to be more. And she can explain that to people and make them understand why it matters and why we need to change. I think she's bringing a message of hope, of difference, and she's an outstanding public speaker. Frankly, when you hear her, it's hard to not think, that's what I want my president to sound like. She could do the same thing for this country that Barack Obama did in 2008. She can make us proud again when we have a knowledgeable, well-educated, well-spoken, compassionate, caring, and insightful person representing us as our president. That's why I think it's time to take a look at Kamala Harris and see where she could lead us. Thanks. And here is Robbie Platt for Pete Buttigieg. My name is Robert Platt, and I support Mayor Pete Buttigieg to be the nominated candidate for presidency for the Democratic Party in 2020, because I feel we need someone fresh and new as our best bet to face off and succeed against Trump. Uh, He is someone who has already made some astonishing trailblazers, for example, becoming Indiana's first openly gay mayor, standing up for LGBT rights in the face of adversity in a state that has in recent years actively suppressed them. He came out as openly gay in 2015, uh, that was actually the same year that, coincidentally, same year, same-sex marriage became legal across the whole of the U.S. And to the surprise of, of some people, he won re-election in South Bend, Indiana, with over 80% of the vote. This shows that this is a man who has the power to unite millennials and also to summon the support of small-town middle America behind him. He is also a fresh face, which is also what I think is badly needed for politics. This is partly what elevated Trump so quickly. Um, An added bonus is the excitement that I personally would have at having someone representing the LGBT community at that level of government and able to bring uh, some, you know, to the forefront some of the issues and concerns that we as a community are facing. 
as a young person, I think he also takes much more seriously and personally some of the issues that we're facing today, such as climate change, which is going to be a very big part of our future. You know, to sum this up, America's electorate is polarized, hungry for change, and wary of more of the same from Washington insiders. And this man is, is the change candidate to unite and energize the country. And finally, here is Rob Carolina for Bernie Sanders. My name is Robert Carolina. I'm a lawyer. I live in London and vote in Ohio. And I support Bernie Sanders for the Democratic Party nomination for president in 2020. I believe America should be a just society and a fair society. I believe that that includes economic justice and economic fairness. And I fear in the last few decades, America has drifted away from those ideals. I believe America is the sort of place where somebody with a treatable disease should not die simply because they don't have enough money for an insurance copay. Someone working two jobs should not have to live in a car because their wage is so low. That somebody with talent and ambition should be able to get an education without condemning themselves to a life of poverty or risking complete poverty forever because they aren't able to complete that education for some reason. Bernie Sanders has been advocating for economic justice his entire political career. He's never wavered from that. He's always fought for those ideals. He is the right candidate in the right place at the right time. The Democratic Party has lost touch with the working people of the United States. We've lost that sense of trust that used to form a core part of the Democratic Party's ability to make change, to make things better. We need leadership, not a manager. A manager is somebody who looks at the crowd and says, look at my resume, look at my credentials, let me see where you're going and and tell me what you want and I'll see if I can help. A leader says, look, folks, We need to make a change in direction. We need to go someplace. Follow me. That's what I want to do. Let's nominate Bernie. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Emma Burnell, my lovely guest, for appearing on the podcast with me. Um, You should check out Emma's website, politicalhuman.com. You should also, if you haven't already registered to vote, um, go to votefromabroad.org for Americans overseas or vote.org to make sure that you've registered to vote and requested your absentee ballot. Remember, you should do that in every election cycle um, because you may may or may not be um, kept on the voter rolls, even if you have previously been registered. As always, you can reach me at Twitter. Um, on Twitter, I am at Karen J-R, that's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R. Or you can leave a voicemail if you're using the mobile version of the Anchor app. Thanks so much for listening as always and I'll talk to you next week.